Simple Beep, episode LXV, 10. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we are back after a little bit of an extended hiatus, and we'll get to that in follow-up. But perhaps you might need a little bit of reminding, as we did, even what the topic of our follow-up would be. And it all has to do with our last show, which was episode 64, and we talked about 64-bit and other architecture transitions. And towards the end of the episode, we talked about iOS apps that needed to be updated to go 64-bit or else they would go away or be otherwise unusable come iOS 11. And there were a few interesting examples that came up uh, after we recorded. So there was one that got tweeted by, I think, Swift on Security, which is always a, a source of entertainment for, you know, like sort of bad tech news, uh, that an application made by the carmaker Ford that was used for, like, unlocking your car remotely through, I don't know, like, I guess they have a cellular connection in the car. Uh, this was a 32-bit only app and was basically going to, like, brick this feature in people's cars. And they would have to go and use, I don't know, like, keys like an animal to actually be able to uh, unlock their car. But that didn't seem uh, particularly promising. I think also from that security angle of like, if you haven't updated the app that may have a security vulnerability and let people get into your car or otherwise hack or control it in multiple years, eh, it doesn't seem very good. But the good news was that perhaps under pressure from the fact that this app wasn't going to work at all anymore in iOS 11, and very soon that was going to be millions and millions of people's phones, the app did get an update, like many of the other apps that we discussed last episode that got these 11th hour updates, even when it wasn't expected. But in this case, come on, like it's, it's Ford. They, they have the money. <laughs> they can, they can uh, put a developer on that for, uh, for a week or two and get at least a basic update out. And they did. There were some other people who also, as they were actually updating to iOS 11, were posting their lists of what was going to go away on their devices, the same as we did wrapping up the episode. And there's a, I had a reaction and there was a really good list as well and commentary from Cable Sasser, from Panic, and just the whole thing about like Apple's line on getting apps updated is, well, just if you're an end user, you should just ask the developer to update their app, but that's not always possible. And he says here, he has this list and you can tell that it scrolls on and on, but he just posted one screenshot. And he says, there's an app I use every day, apps that hold strong memories with my kids, an app by a deceased developer. Goodbye, my friends. It's time to go. So he is uh, making a note and moving on. And I think that's what many of us have done in the uh, intervening weeks. Although I only have my iPad on iOS 11 because I'm waiting for a shiny new phone to arrive. Ooh. Yeah. So more on that in the in the topic of our episode, but a couple more pieces of follow-up first. As we recorded... Our episode 64, Apple released iTunes version 12.7, which took away the uh, iOS app store that you could access within the Mac version of iTunes. And with this came the ability to manage apps on your phone through your computer, as well as save the .ipa files somewhere deep in your user home folder. 
And we talked about this in our uh, Simple Beep Slack for a while after we finished recording because we realized that we had kind of talked about wanting to preserve some of our favorite apps that wouldn't be able to run under iOS 11. And one way to do that would be to quit, go into the app store and download the file and make sure that the actual file itself was backed up somewhere. And I had uh, auto updates on, so I realized like, oh no, I won't be able to do it. But follow up to that follow up, pretty soon after Apple released iTunes 12.7, they released iTunes 12.6.3, which really only happened to bring back the iOS app store within the macOS iTunes app and the ability to manage apps on your iOS devices. So I guess good news for those of you who are uh, joining us a month later and want to uh, go back through the app store and download some IPA files just to uh, preserve them. I have to imagine that this came from a bunch of requests from people who are doing things like bulk managing iOS devices that are not going through some of the more modern provisioning stuff and that the lack of this feature would basically mean that they would have to like update an entire fleet of hundreds or thousands of of iOS devices. And despite the protestations in the media that Apple does things with their software to break them and make the hardware seem bad and make you buy new ones, that when they're actually dealing with like business-to-business customers like that, that's not their intention. And so this got kind of pushed back out for that that specialty case probably in like education and enterprise but also might be a, a benefit to those of us who are trying to do some private use of it as a preservation tool as well one other thing that uh, we talked about in the last episode was the number of architectures that apple has gone through on the road to Uh, Intel 64-bit on the Mac and ARM 64-bit on iOS devices. And we got some clarification about how many different architectures there were from someone who would certainly know, uh, Chris (laughs) Espinoza, who's a a legendary Apple employee. I think he's Apple employee number eight and still with the company and certainly knows his Apple history inside and out because he's seen it firsthand. And he clarified that there have been five different Mac processor architectures and that there was a 64-bit PowerPC in the G5, but it was really just like very short-lived, but that at that time, there was a version of Xcode that would actually compile apps that in a way that he called four-way fat. So it would actually have <laughs> four different, yeah, extra fat, triple yeah. XL, <laughs> that it would actually have four different binary modes for four different extant architectures uh, for OS X, which is pretty impressive. For a final piece of follow-up, a friend of the show, Mark Anbinder, uh, got in touch with us about Mode32, which we also talked about. It was a piece of system software originally developed by Connectix and later acquired by Apple to help some early Macintoshes fully address the 32-bit memory space. And while he did tweet at us about this, this was a special piece of follow-up because he also got to talk to us in person. Uh, he told me the story of how he kind of accidentally ended up a QA tester for Connectix and so had a whole bunch of early beta and initial releases of Mode32 so that when uh, they got acquired, there was a threat of a lawsuit. And so Apple issued refunds for everyone who had bought Mode32 from Connectix. And the people at Connectix told Mark he could just send Apple one of the like beta disks they had sent him. And he essentially got the refund for free. But uh, he was able to tell 
me this in person because uh, he and I were at Ed's wedding. Yeah, it's also the reason that we haven't recorded it in a while <laughs> is uh, there was a bit of a flurry of activity. I was busy planning a wedding and Brian, you were the best man at the wedding. And uh, yeah, some of our listeners were also at the wedding, uh, which is, you know, friends and listeners, which was a, a lot of fun. Uh, I think anyone who does a podcast uh, will tell you that in-person follow-up is the coolest kind of follow-up to receive. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, it, w- it was a great time. And uh, like I said, that was some of the reason that we've taken some time off uh, leading up to the wedding and honeymoon. I've been out of the country, ate up a few weeks, and uh, we hope to get back on a more regular schedule now as uh, things settle down. Every every once in a while, I kind of like look over my shoulder like, what am I supposed to be planning now? Uh, because this has been such a big project that's been over a year in the works. And uh, now I get to focus on some some other things, including the podcast. So uh, it's it's good to have made it through. It was a great time. And uh, it's good to be back. Yeah. So uh, that was a joyous occasion, uh, <laughs> personal joyous occasion. But it's also uh, it's kind of uh, one of the more joyous occasions in the Apple calendar right now, which applies to perhaps more of our listeners. It's like uh, it's like iPhone Christmas. Yeah, actually, I've been watching uh, the World Series and Sprint is running an ad campaign right now about iPhone season. So like it's it's a mainstream ad campaign that runs seemingly every commercial break uh, talking about how people are, are participating in the joy that is iPhone season and a, what a great opportunity to re-up your contract with Sprint. So uh, oh. it's, it's true <laughs> that like it it, it is... A joyous time of year that not only like listeners of our show and the larger Apple ecosystem will appreciate, but it seems to be crossing over into mainstream commercial appeal. I kid, but it is sort of like a weird, bizarro Santa phenomenon. Like, you know, for the kids for Santa are supposed to go to bed early, and all of us on the East Coast of the U.S. had to wake up in the middle of the night to try to secure their presents. And uh, everyone is now eagerly tracking their phones as they make their way halfway across the world. And, like, people are plugging in UPS plane identifiers into flight aware and they have a special page that's like watch the fleet of iphone planes travel across the world like like the santa tracker by uh by by norad every Mm -hmm. every winter it really is uh a holiday type of spirit around this but of course the thing that is coming is the iphone 10 and i did it right i called it the iphone 10 and that's going to be the topic of our show today is that, well, the the name is going to be a point of contention for probably the entire life of this device. Are, are people going to call it the iPhone X? And the fact of the matter is that this both letter, Roman numeral, number 10 is, has had a pretty long history now with Apple. And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning for some for some examples of the use of the, the letter X that I think are more coincidental. But Apple's use of the Roman numeral 10 goes to the beginning of the OS 10 era, and that's over 15 years now. And it's been not 100% standardized throughout, and so we'll see some of the interesting ways that it's been used and where it has or hasn't tripped people up. So uh, we're going to divide into hardware and software because there have been a handful of 
Apple devices before the iPhone 10 that have had a X in in the name. And it actually goes back very, very early. The first one of these, like I said, I think a little bit coincidental, is the Macintosh XL. And uh, it's it's best described as a cross between a Lisa and a Mac. And so I don't know if this is the X is sort of indicating the crossover or whether it's just that it's extra large, uh, sort of a beefier Mac than the 128K because the Lisa was, you know, it had more significant hardware in it even as it was released prior to the Mac. And that's why it cost like $10,000 and very few people bought it. The Macintosh XL was essentially, I think, like a... I, I will probably get a little bit of this wrong, but it's, it looks almost like a retrofit of the Lisa to perhaps move some, if not units, some components off of, you know, out of the warehouse for Apple and to have a more powerful Mac solution, even though it was a kind of backwards Mac solution. It came with software that was called MacWorks XL. And you might think that that would sound like like an office suite, like the combination of, uh, you know, MacWrite and MacPaint. But instead, it's a lot more like the classic environment that ran in the beginning of OS X, because what it did was it was a Lisa program that was effectively a Macintosh emulator. And this led to some weird effects uh, due to the hardware that the Lisa had. So one thing that went away with the Mac and was one of the hallmark features of the Mac is that at that time, computers were going away from using essentially television displays to their own dedicated displays. And the original Mac had square pixels. And we, we've we come to expect square pixels on pretty much every display that we have now, especially since we've gotten rid of CRT TVs in our you know most of our lives. And so we expect that both our computers, our phones, and our televisions all have square pixels. But the Lisa had rectangular pixels, more of a holdover from like a a television type monitor. And so it ran the software, it ran the Mac OS in emulation, but with the rectangular pixels, which meant that everything came out a little bit kind of squashy (laughs) and that there was actually an option where you could get a thing called the Macintosh XL screen kit upgrade that would actually retrofit again, like change the display to have a square pixel display so that your Macintosh XL would be more like the other Macs and perhaps a little bit more compatible as they went in the future. And talking about like expandability and longevity of these machines, apparently the Macintosh XL could run all the way up through uh, system 7.5.5. That's incredible. Remember, this machine came out in April of 1985. So, yeah, the X, XL perhaps stands for extra longevity here, because that's that's John Syracuse and Mac Pro territory. Yeah, really. Uh, the Macintosh XL also seems like the, the perfect machine for uh, Stephen Hackett to profile. And, and good luck finding one, I imagine. The next group of classic Macintosh machines to have an X in their name is the Macintosh 2X line. The Macintosh 2 uh, is, of course, Roman numerals, like two capital I's. And I think one of the things 
to point out here, since we're focusing on the names and the Roman numeral aspect of things, is that the 2X um, was stylized as capital I, capital I, lowercase x, right? Because because the uppercase X is in, in and of itself a Roman numeral character, and the Roman numeral IIX that does not exist, right? That that's that's not a well-formed Roman numeral. So to make a well-formed product name, they made a distinction between the numerals, even though they were Roman numerals, and the letter. And so I don't think anyone was confused as to how to pronounce 2x. Yeah, that's a key distinction is that the x in 2x is pronounced x. The Macintosh 2x came out in 1988 and was basically upgraded internals, but in the same case that its predecessor, the Mac 2, used. And there were other Mac 2 models that would come out, and all of the ones that had the X in somewhere in their name uh, all had in common that they used a 68030 processor on the inside. So that's what the X stood for. So there was the 2X, but then there was also the 2VX which is somehow in the Macintosh 2 line, but was basically a centrist. And there's uh, notes on its Wikipedia page that it was actually like always intended to be a centrist, but they wanted to release it before Apple had the rights to use the word centrist as a product name and a product line. So, I mean, this is all in the era of like, what's a Performa? Well, it's it's a lower cost software bundled version of either an LC or a Quadra or, or a Centris, and it, where all the lines start to blur. There was also the 2CX, which I think was maybe its own case, a new case type that uh, was notable because it was a lot more compact than the 2 and the 2X. And it was, I think, the first like just CPU desktop piece that could work either uh, horizontal, like most product shots show it, or vertically, like a kind of a mini tower. And then there was the 2FX, which has been discussed on this show, often by John Syracuse as well, because it was the top of the line, the fastest Mac you could get uh, at an exorbitant price. And this one went back to the original Mac 2 and Mac 2X case. I think regardless of the fact that the product line was messy and what these different things, what these different names denoted was not 100% clear, just looking at it on paper, like the 2, 2X, 2CX, 2VX, it reminds me a lot of like a car lineup where uh, you would have like maybe you're, you know, your Honda Accord and then you've got like the DX and the LX, right? Like, and there are different variations of it or even where you would have different car models within uh, a manufacturer. And it's like, well, we only make, you know, six different types of car. We aren't going to come up with like fancy names for each of them. If you're interested, here they are, right? And it's not so complicated. It, it's not like the late Performa era where it's like, well, what's the difference between the 7320 and the 7350? <laughs> um, you know, there were only a handful of options in this line. Uh, and I think it was clear naming, if not clear marketing. And speaking of John Syracuse, the Macintosh 2X also made an appearance in the most recent episode of ATP as we record this. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Oh, yeah, they were talking about the inclusion of the X and uh, 
whether the the X in the iPhone line will get reused anywhere. And he told the story of the the Mac SE and the fact that then they updated it with a 6830 processor, and then this would mean that its name would be the, the Macintosh SEX. But Apple did not like the, the connotations of calling their newest computer sex. Uh, so that did not happen then, and it will almost certainly not happen anytime again in, uh, in Apple's future with product naming, with special editions and tens, uh, or X's, uh, crashing together in product names. Yeah. If if the same like parallel thinking happens, it'll probably be whatever number comes after the A in Apple's system on a chip. And so if like the A11 Bionic goes into the SE, you could either get the SE11 or the SE Bionic. Who knows? Yeah. Or I think that if uh, if an if a special edition occurs in the future, there's an easy solution to this, which is to call it the the 10 SE. Ah, yes. <laughs> Uh, then even if people call it the XSE, that's not so bad. That's not too bad, yeah. Jumping way ahead uh, to a completely different class of product is uh, into the macOS 10 er- post-Mac OS X era is the XServe, which was Apple's entire line of rack-mountable servers that run macOS 10, macOS 10 server specifically. But as you will note, they are it's pronounced X, and it's spelled with a capital X and lowercase s-e-r-v-e. And uh, they were not the 10-serve, they were the X-serve, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense in, in the context. But the, the notion was that the X in that product name really was tying it to the software of OS X server. So they were announced in May 2002, uh, the second year of the OS X era, and they came with G4 processors and received lots of updates along the way. Uh, kind of ties back to last episode as well. They went to the G5 in 2005 and then made the Intel transition over to Xeon processors, uh, you know, the pro-grade or uh, server-grade processors in 2006. And they were maintained on the back burner with uh, various upgrades and changes uh, for another five years. So the product line did span over nine years in total of having XServe products that went with Mac OS, not X. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of that product line, there were a couple things that came out that, that preserved the X at the front pronounced X naming that I guess kind of fell in the scope of of like dedicated network performance. Um, so there is, of course, the XServe hardware in its many forms. There is the XServe RAID, which was, I don't know how many units tall, like, I don't know, 5U, 6U, rack-mountable unit that had 14 uh, drive slots. That's 14 more than in any current Apple product, basically. That's Yeah, that's true. And they weren't fusion drives either. They were full spinning platters. And there was also a little bit of special software called XSAN. Uh, so this is an uppercase X, lowercase S-A-N, except SAN is itself an acronym that's usually capital S-A-N for storage area network. So we're flying all over the place here. Um, and SAN is kind of its own, uh, like a file system meant for lots of simultaneous uh, usage and and kind of like clustering it out. And this was kind of the 
time when Apple had Fiber Channel, I think in its G5 or Mac Pro towers, and of course the XServe hardware. Uh, but the interesting thing about XSAN is that while the XServe hardware product line was discontinued in 2011, XSAN still exists under that same file name in macOS 10 server. There's even a page, or there's even a section on Apple's website for macOS 10 server that still refers to this as XSAN. I feel like this is another case of somebody is relying on this and uh, ha- has their little hotline to Apple. One thing, though, is uh, the icon for this is uh, is very cool. It's like a cube made up of tiny little metal spheres, like those little magnetic, like super strong magnet spheres that you can play with and construct things. And someone has built a perfect cube out of them. And that's that's XSAN. And that's pretty much it for hardware that had an X in its product name. Until now. Right, with the iPhone X. So with XSAN in mind as a component of the Apple operating system, let's ease into software that has an X in it, no matter how it's pronounced, with arguably the, the most important example. And the one that started the entire how do you pronounce that war. And of of course, it's Mac OS X. And of course, it Mac OS X came at a time when Apple was seriously struggling and that the few people who were paying attention to Mac OS X uh, thought that, yeah, its name was quirky, its interface was quirky. It did very strange things in at the beginning, like put the Apple logo in the middle of the menu bar where it would get in the way and the strange single window modes. And so it was... It was a bit of an odd duck to to begin with, and it's having a slightly uh, idiosyncratic name just fit along with it. And of course, it was pronounced Mac OS X, and people called it Mac OS X for a long time, which actually sounds a lot more like sex than any other uh, product name that, that Apple has come up with, with with an X in the title. Uh, one thing, just like before we jump into the whole 10 versus X thing and go through some related products. I think that it's interesting to place the naming and numbering of Mac OS X in some broader context and like, you know, leaning heavily on the Roman numeral 10 is something that carried on for a long time in the current Mac OS era. I mean, what, yeah, I don't know what even what else to call it now. We can still call it the OS 10 era, I suppose, because the version numbers still start with a Arabic numeral 10, um, even if they're hidden, hidden away uh, in the uh, about this Mac window. But just to put it in context of how Apple had been numbering their operating systems before, we've, we now have 15 years of 10, and the fact that we don't even really know what to do with that anymore. How did we get to 10 in less than 15 or about 15 years? Um, and one of the things that I, I always have to go back and sort of just carefully look at is that if you think about the eras of, of Apple's Macintosh system software, it kind of goes 1, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and what happened in between there? So we'll, we'll talk about this with some other products that had weird jumps in their version numbers. And the Macintosh system software didn't go exactly from one straight to six, but 
it almost might as well have. So versions 2, 3, 4, and 5 happened in about three years, from 1985 to 1988. And so you can think of that as being about the same time as from, like, Mavericks to today as we record this, or the difference between, like, macOS 10.0 to Panther. So a, a pretty short time and probably a commensurate amount of, like, feature changes. And that's why we think of like one and six as being the eras. And in this time, I think that perhaps because they just hadn't thought about it, it certainly wasn't a marketing push. It was just a technical aspect of the software. What is the version number? Does the entire operating system as a whole even really have a version number or do its components only have version numbers? Things were weird along the way here. So super strange stuff happened with versions 2, 3, and 4, and they just kind of went by. But by the time you got to System 6, that was comprised of Finder 6.1, which had existed previously in System 5, and MultiFinder version 6.0. MultiFinder was first released in System 5 and went immediately from version 1.0 to version 6.0. So... This is this is this whole thing of like how do you how do you even bundle and package and name and number things? And do you want them to proceed in lockstep? Do you want them to be important for marketing? Do you really care what your consumers call them as long as they know what they've got? Uh and for for Mac OS 10, obviously they they pushed to 10. Uh I said, you know, the eras were kind of one, six, seven, but that is probably eight and nine. Like eight and nine went along pretty quickly. Uh, I think in order to get to ten, so that the the big new thing could be ten, and so that ten could persevere for well until the present, uh, regardless of whether it's on the box. Well, there are no more boxes, or uh, in the in the about box. Uh, at this point. So this whole era kicked off as like sort of a dash up to get to a nice round number 10, represent it with a big bold X, uh, but pronounce it 10. And that all kicked off in 2000. People who followed the trajectory of Apple, the company, and the Macintosh as a hardware and a software line knew that they were pursuing the next big, great operating system. And I think around the time of OS 8 was when uh, Rhapsody, the codenamed uh, Savior OS, was going to come. And of course it didn't. We got Copeland. Uh, and then, like I said, OS 9 was pretty much just the transition OS that laid a lot of the groundwork to help it emulate well in Classic and OS 10. And those releases, like from from 8 to 8.5... And 8.5 to 9 and 9 to 9.5 were very much like what we expect out of a yearly OS X macOS release now is something that we would consider 0.1 now if you're still counting. And there it was like, oh, well, leaps and bounds to get to the get to the big double digits. And then the irony of it is they didn't go double digits. They went with the Roman numeral instead. <laughs> So it was no surprise when at Macworld San Francisco in January of 2000, uh, Steve Jobs finally publicly unveiled 
Mac OS X, which would be coming out later that year. Um, and we don't need to go over all that same stuff, the Aqua interface, the Unix uh, foundation. Um, over the summer, probably around WWDC, there was a developer preview, and then there was a public beta in September of that year. Um, so it was like a, a gradual rollout to get the public accustomed to it. And I remember one of our classmates spent the money to get the uh, the public beta and uh, I remember just like, wow, it looks so different. But it was, it was there as a, a completely new thing, Mac OS X. It's not X, it's 10. And that naming convention stayed with the OS, like we've said, for a long time. Uh, initially, there were just these point releases and then like, so like 10.0, 10.1. And then uh, Apple kind of capitalized on their code names for the big point releases, which were big cats. And Ed and I have a history with big cats and big cats in space. Um, so 10.2 was named Jaguar. And we'll talk about how they embraced that branding with the box art. Um, and then Mountain Lion, which was 10.8, kind of got this under the radar renaming of the, the the product line of the operating system from Mac OS 10 to just OS 10 or the letters OS space X. And that stayed until uh, last year, Mac OS 10.12, which is not 10.12. <laughs> Another thing we can get into um, where it's now in line with Apple's other product operating systems, uh, lowercase MAC, no space, uppercase OS, and no X. Yes, yeah, so the, the X is gone. It had a good run. Um, and so so now everyone, even the ones who were, you know, were p- pedantic and got it right and always called it 10 and never called it X are now going to still slip up and call it OS 10. And then that's not technically correct either anymore. And like I said, I don't even know what, um, you know, what is the best name to give to this overall era because it is a and still an overall era it's a continual progression it's a single platform that has evolved over the 16 17 years uh but what is it now it's it's mac os uh i guess that links it back to the previous era and perhaps more than uh more than it had for for much of its life but yeah the 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 x the roman numeral 10 became a big piece of not just uh not just the numbering but also the branding with uh 10.0 and 10.1 the big lickable aqua x uh in uh garamond with like lots of uh you know translucency effects applied to the roman numeral itself was uh, a piece of the marketing then with one of the big cats, they actually had a you know, a, a fuzzy, uh, <laughs> fuzzy, uh, furry X. I think that was for maybe. Um, I think it was Jaguar. Yeah, the spots was Jaguar, and then they had like big metal X's with subtle hints to what the feature was. Like uh, Tiger had a spotlight, and Leopard had the space for Time Machine. Right, and the X became more of just like a, a sans serif, uh, almost just like a cross. Uh, very abstract. And and as it got more and more abstract, I think that's at the point that um, it became just sort of as a symbol rather than a version number uh, in the OS X era. And then it ran its course, and uh, it as did... Uh, they also ran out of big cats uh, and went to the, the California place name uh, 
way of doing things and decided that that was the the primary way to do it. And now, you know, at some point we're going to all forget what the uh, what the order of California place names is. And we'll always just have to, like, look at a chart to try to figure out when anything happened. Uh, or you have to think in the back of your mind that you're, you know, running macOS 10.13. But uh, that's where we stand now. Along the way, though, uh, the the operating system has spawned several pieces of related software and uh, frameworks and things like that that also picked up some of the 10 slash X naming. The thing we'll address first is the thing that happens first when you first start a computer, and that's the bootloader. And uh, we've talked a little bit about this in the past because there was a switch in the classic Mac era from an old world ROM to a new world ROM. And uh, I think the new world came around the original iMac. And then um, from the introduction of Mac OS 10, like 10.0, until the Intel transition, there was this third bootloader called simply BootX. Uh, no space in between the two, and the X is capitalized. And this has since been replaced by a more generic sounding boot.efi the extensible firmware interface and uh so it's it was a, a temporary part of mac os 10 that incorporated the x but uh no longer there another piece of technology like this is the x grid networked computing protocol and it was kind of a debate of whether we talk about this here or under the umbrella of X-Serve-inspired X-software, uh, but it also had a limited run from macOS 10.4 through 10.7. And it, it is what it sounded like. It was uh, a protocol to kind of orchestrate um, computing in tandem so you could harness the power of a lot of machines that were all networked together. And I assume it's been... Uh, what did, what do people like to call it? Sunset? Deprecated. <laughs> in, form, in favor of a more modern technology. And finally, there's the X11 window system. And I'm pretty sure this is uh, how I'm pronouncing it. Not 1011. No, it's not 1011. It's X11. Which was Apple's uh, piece of software that helped bridge the gap when we got to macOS 10 between the, like, the Mac part of Mac OS 10 and the Unix part of Mac OS 10 because um, the X window system was I think like the not just a, a GUI but the kind of the the window rendering system for a lot of other Unix based OSs and I don't think I ever had software that needed to be run within X11 that's a good thing because it was virtually impossible to get it working properly. So have you done it? Because I know there are like certain academic software packages that have been optimized for Unix. I think I had one thing in college that actually ran on it. And then there were things where like, if you didn't want to pay for Photoshop, you know, you could get GIMP, which was open source and runs on, you know, Unix or Linux. And then you could like try to compile it yourself and get it to run under X11 on OS 10. But it was just a nightmare and it had it suffered from some of those problems like um kind of like classic environment did where you would get like 
no text anti-aliasing or like switching from application to application didn't quite work right because it was a it was like a separate windowing layer that was trying to pretend like it was in among all of the other quartz-based uh, windows in OS X, and it was it, uh, I preferred to avoid it when possible. But it did have the name of X11. It was one of those optional components for 10.3 and 10.4, and then just kind of surreptitiously dropped in your utilities folder from 10.5 through 10.7. And then since then, I don't think there's been an actual like dot app for people who need this bridge. Um, but Apple is now, I think, just contributing to or maybe maintaining an open source project, XQuartz, which has been the, the modern replacement for X11. I will say that uh, X11 continues to uh, make my life more difficult in Apple software, because it's one of those things that got put into the iOS dictionary as a historical piece of Apple software or hardware. And when I'm going to like make a grocery list, um, like if I want two boxes of cereal, I will usually put like cereal X2. But then if it that if I want to make clear, like I only need one box, I will put cereal X1 and it will autocorrect to capital X11 for X11. I do not want a X11 cereal, and I do not want 11 boxes of cereal. <laughs> so I wish that this product and its name would would go away permanently, but that is not to be. I hope uh, Stephen Trouton Smith or or someone like that can someday expose like whatever list is deep within iOS that uh, someone had to manually generate like all these these historical Apple product names. And I wonder if there's anything in there that like people would notice as as being left out or something. I bet that would be pretty fascinating. Of course, now all of us nerds are uh, just feeding it with machine learning. So oh, that's true. Uh, they'll they'll have it forever now. Yeah. <laughs> so X11 won't go away entirely. How about let's move on to an important piece of software that people have been speculating for a while whether it'll go away or change in some some major way, and that is another one pronounced X. And it's, of course, Xcode, which is Apple's developer environment that was released in October of 2003 with macOS 10, 10.3 Panther. And, <laughs> and all the people who were on Code Warrior had to uh, make their way over slowly but surely. And there wasn't a whole lot of an incentive to do so because it was five years before the iOS App Store. Uh, but Xcode lives on to to this day, and it was presented, of course, as being the best way to write applications for Mac OS X 10, right? So the X does match with 10 in Mac OS 10 here. Uh, but you know, there's there's an alternative, there's an alternate universe out there somewhere where this is actually pronounced 10 code, and uh people are still writing iOS apps with 10 code, but that's not the world that we live in. Uh but of course, then in 2008, Xcode gained a whole lot of new abilities, and in fact, probably their its primary abilities right now is the fact that it's the the one and only way to develop native iOS applications. And so, 
you know, it, it's actually probably a good thing that the, the X here is pronounced as such as the letter because it actually kind of distances itself from the Macintosh that way and makes it seem a little bit more normal as a, uh, a cross-platform development environment. And, you know, I don't know, you know, 2003 was four years before the iPhone. So there might have been some hint that that would be uh, the way to go with with this product and that it might take on that important role when it was you know, first introduced to the public. Uh, but it is definitely uh, one of the more important applications in the entire Apple ecosystem because without it, uh, all of our all of our shiny new phones would do far, far less. What what did Steve Jobs call it? The sweet solution of web apps? Right, right. Well, you know, Xcode was around then and it was for that one awkward year, it was reserved as, you know, it matches with the branding for the Macintosh and it's a Macintosh development uh, suite. And that was not what people wanted, both from the consumer and from the developer side. And so they made uh they made a good choice there not to uh stick too closely to what they had called it uh and let its uh let its functionality uh expand to something that was completely different and has almost nothing to do with that portion of its name. The code portion uh continues on. And of course we'll see what happens uh as you know I, I'm I'm not not to get you know too much into the future rather than the past, but I'm I'm a firm believer that yes, someday you will be able to write iOS applications on iOS, and that thing will probably take a lot of code out of Xcode. But no, I do not think that that thing will be called Xcode just because it does have that right there in the name. It does have that piece of baggage that ties it to the Mac, and because it only runs on Macs now, that's okay. But uh, if it ever makes that jump, I feel like it is ripe for a renaming. Maybe in the nearer term, one thing to look out for is what happens when they hit version 10. Because uh, in this kind of summer to fall upgrade of everything Apple operating system, Xcode got bumped to version 9. And I think version 8 came last year. So uh, next year, are we going to see Xcode X or Xcode 10? Xcode X Furious. One can only hope that... <laughs> So Xcode, Xcode is a brand of its own and, and it lives on. Let's go into some applications that just got an X tagged on for no reason. These will all also um, kind of complement what Ed was discussing earlier about system software, uh, just kind of making big version number jumps in the early days. People made fun of Microsoft for their Windows numbering, but like, I mean, n- no one is safe. If you, are, if you are a company and you have more than one software product, this could happen to you. The first we'll talk about is QuickTime 10, pronounced 10, uh, stylized X. <laughs> this shipped with uh, macOS 10.6 uh, Snow Leopard, and it jumped from the previous version being 7. And um, really all I want to say about this is I know I was one of these people. Ed, I think you were one of these people. There were many people who kept the version 7 of the QuickTime player around for a long time because it simply just did more than the redesigned, uh, very XE <laughs> futuristic new QuickTime 10 player application. I've still got it. 
it was a big change in a lot of the architecture that went on in QuickTime and enabled a lot more, I think it enabled a lot more types of media playback um, that whereas the previous QuickTime framework was heavily tied to the, the .mov container format and some of the early QuickTime uh, codecs, like, you know, going back to terrible things like Cinepack and, you know, very early stuff. And this is moving more into like the H.264 era uh, and getting to modern video encoding. So the new player was able to do those things, but it was strictly a player. And before that, QuickTime had like the player and the regular version and the pro version. And uh, one of the terrible things in version 7 that came immediately before 10 was that that was all kind of lumped together and into one application and you were either like registered or not. And that if you didn't have a serial number for QuickTime 10 Pro, literally like 85% of the things in the menu were grayed out and said Pro next to them. Um, it, it had become not a great piece of software, but it was more than just a player application. It lets you uh, re-encode things and trim movies easily uh, and do a lot of things that QuickTime had done since, you know, I remember like version 2.5 or something. Um, but a lot of that went away where uh, the focus on QuickTime in its current incarnations is to be more of a, a framework and framework is more closely aligned with the operating system and its naming and branding as opposed to uh, being a standalone piece of software on its own. Another piece of software that got a version number upgrade, while many would argue a functionality downgrade, was Final Cut Pro. Uh, Final Cut Pro was in version 4 uh, before the June 2011 release of Final Cut Pro. 10, uh, of course, pronounced 10, stylized X. And uh, I remember the blowback from this release was was gigantic. I don't think there was a, a single like video pro, aside from maybe one or two pull quotes that Apple used in marketing, that said Final Cut Pro 10 is, is better, let alone equal to Final Cut Pro 4. Well, and wasn't this at the time where a license to Final Cut still cost like $800. I think so. Maybe Final Cut Pro 10 was the start of, of that going down. Yeah, people saw it as a huge, huge downgrade, which I think is exactly the opposite of what Apple was going for with the naming here. So unlike something like QuickTime, where it's just like aligning itself to, to be a component of the operating system. This is a standalone pro application with a hefty price tag. And I think that the implication here was supposed to be like, we jumped from four to 10 and it's like the 10 that you know and love and remember how big of an improvement it was going from Mac OS nine to Mac OS 10. And that was what Apple hoped people would see in this piece of software, but it was not how people reacted at all. A little bit of real-time follow-up. This must have been a typo on my part. It went from version 7, just like QuickTime, to version 10, but still a big jump. And I think part of the, the transition that Final Cut Pro 10 happened around the same time as the iMovie big rewrite, because I think iMovie similarly went from a fuller-featured timeline 
editing video program to the the more fluid iOSy one that's just kind of like one long trim thing and not a lot of discoverable support for things like picture in picture or transitions or titles. And so maybe the the Final Cut Pro 10 rethink was was in line with that. And uh, I only bring that up to say that iMovie and other members of the iLife suite had their own version numbering weirdness because sometimes they would be normal version numbers we think of like 4.5 or 6.0. And then there, when they were only offered in the iLife package, their version number was the year they were released. So you went from like iMovie 6 to iMovie apostrophe 10, iMovie apostrophe 11. Yeah, that of course gets you into the trap. Again, a, a Microsoftian trap of having, uh, you know, iWork 08 be your most recent release. And it's like 2012. And it's like, well, that's that doesn't sound great. <laughs> iWork is uh, and is one piece of software that I'm surprised didn't get the same treatment that when it had its full rewrite, which was what it was like pages five and numbers for like they all have their own version numbers too right like it would have been a perfect time to just to when they did the that full rewrite which got some of the same negative feedback of pulling out features and then they got pushed back in over time to me that seems like that would have been the time to say oh well this is this is pages 10 uh and this is the iwork 10 suite um and Gosh, I mean, well, I think Apple tries to make it as impossible to talk about their products as possible. See, see, uh, iPad devices. <laughs> um, but the fact that there's no good way to talk about which, whether you're talking about pages on iOS or pages for Mac, um, maybe having that little cue would have been nice, but uh, it didn't get that same, same kind of treatment and jump, perhaps because they were a little bit gun shy after, uh, after Final Cut. That didn't mean that it was the the very last uh, application to get the treatment, though. The last one we'll discuss here is Logic Pro. When Logic Pro had its version 10 released, this, of course, was also stylized X. And this was a couple years after Final Cut Pro 10. Matching the, the video editing suite with their audio editing suite, having par- parallel branding there. And like I uh, just mentioned, how Final Cut and iMovie were on similar development or, or, or like product strategy things, but one is professional, one is consumer. Uh, the consumer version of Logic Pro provided by Apple is GarageBand. But notably, when GarageBand made its big version leap, uh, this time from 6 to 10, it was stylized with Arabic numerals, 1-0. So, you know, who who can say what's, what's going on here? <laughs> it, it's hard to know. Uh, I think that is the end of the, uh, the X branding, though, until we got to iPhone 10. Uh, but there are a couple of other, uh, little version number oddities and some, some famously, uh, misrepresented Apple product names, uh, that we want to wrap up the episode with. So speaking of some strange version number jumps, having discontinuous version numbers like from six to 10 or from, you know, one to effectively six. How about tvOS? The very first release of tvOS was tvOS 9. There was no 1 through 8. Uh, it just went immediately to 9. And again, this was to try to align multiple products 
pieces of software together. So that was to align it with iOS, which was also releasing iOS 9 at essentially the same time, uh, certainly within the same year. And the funny thing that happened there is that basically around the same time, the watch was coming out and they started it with watchOS 1. So tvOS, you're, you're a special one. Um, although I think perhaps that may indicate that it's, uh, maybe even, uh, behind the scenes is a lot more similar to iOS, uh, than any of the other operating systems that Apple develops now. And for some other misnamed or, or, you know, mispronounced products, we'll move away from weird version numbering to just straight up product names. And I think the the granddaddy of all of these is the iPod Touch, which I still hear referenced to this day as iTouch. I still do not know how this happened. I would love the definitive story. Mark Bramhill, get on this. I would like the definitive story of how it came to be that literally tens of millions of people on this planet think that that device was called the iTouch. And I mean, it's just a shortening of the name, I guess. But I still don't know how we got from from here to there. The name of the product is the iPod Touch. Uh, but I think you know at least as many people uh, got that wrong as as got wrong Mac OS X, and and you know saying OS X is just that's just reading the letters before you, right? Like that's that's an honest mistake to make. So I I I don't know how you. The, how did you just miss the capital P O D? Um, but but like I guess in one year and out the other, and uh, the iTouch. Well, it's it, does it still exist? Yeah, it's the only iPod as of this recording. It still exists. Um, someday, perhaps we will uh, finally put it to bed as well. <laughs> I think that there were then also fears that the same sort of thing was going to happen. Uh, well, I mean, there are all of these things that were like rumored product names where people would just slap I on the front of something and then the actual product would come out and and surprise them. Um, you know, all of the ridiculous names for the iPad before the iPad came out. Um, and everyone presumed that when, uh, you know, smoke turned to fire for Apple creating a watch, that it was going to be the iWatch. Um, but then, of course, it was the Apple Watch instead. Uh, and... I think that there are, you know, people who occasionally slip up and say I watch, but nothing on on any type of scale like the iTouch. And uh, you know, before we know it here, the the Apple Watch is actually going to be a you know, a more successful, more units product than even though we aren't getting exact numbers. Um, but it's gotta be catching up to iPod touches. Uh, I mean, it's clearly outpacing them currently, but it you know it may be cumulatively uh, getting close. So it's a big product, and uh, somehow, some way, Apple managed to get the branding mostly right on this one. I think. Oh, I have one other one that I think is a you know kind of a a, a cute name that people that I I particularly like to use which is just sort of like a nickname was never even, you know, not a like misrepresentation of an actual name, but the, uh, the iMac G4, which was the, the first flat screen iMac. Uh, I still like to call it the iLamp because, uh, because I think that it's just fitting. It has that, that office lamp vibe. 
and uh, was a unique product in, in the history of of Apple. And it's a it's a quicker way to, especially for people who aren't steeped in the history of older Macs. Uh, if you say I lamp to them, they go, "Oh yeah, the one with the swivel arm." Uh, if 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 they remember that era of the Mac at all, uh, whereas if you say the iMac G4, they'll go, well, "Wait, which one was that? Was was that the one with the colors, or was did that look like every other iMac?" It's like, no, it's the one that wasn't the colors and didn't look like every other iMac. That that's the one. <laughs> but yeah, we never know when Apple's going to throw uh, throw the next wrench at us in terms of. of product names and we we know that they do like to be uh kind of precious with them and uh you know not pluralize iphone and not put a definite article in front of iphone and, and all of those sorts of things those are the, those are the things where uh boy i can't i can't get worked up about somebody saying the iphone or iphones or ipads right like that's just English. Uh, norm, normal rules of English being applied to uh, perfectly fine product names. Uh, the rest, though, you know, the Roman numerals, uh, I think that, you know, never say never, but hopefully this is the last opportunity that Apple has to uh, to use that Roman numeral 10. And so it'll go for a couple years. Those devices are going to be, you know, they're going to be the, the fastest iOS devices ever made. And uh, they're going to, you know, I'm I'm still kicking on an iPhone six for uh, well maybe just a matter of hours by the time that uh, this this episode is out, um, and but these devices will be with us for a few years and of course we'll be talking about their history uh, for for a while to come but maybe this is the last great hurrah for uh, Roman numeral ten. So like some of the software we've discussed in this episode, you're going to go from six to ten in, in one fell swoop. There you go. It's perfect. It's like I planned it this way. Just on, just honoring the great history of Apple products by going from six to ten. Like always, if we've missed a major X slash ten product in Apple's history, or if there's something related to this topic that you'd like us to cover, you can get in touch with us either through the contact form on our website, simplebeep.com, or on Twitter at simple underscore beep. But if in this episode we messed up and said 10 when we meant to say X or vice versa, please do not email us because <laughs> I'm sure we did it at least twice. <laughs> it was the entire point of the episode. <laughs> yep. <laughs> of course, you can also get in touch with us individually on Twitter. In the meantime, I'm at Acormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. We will talk to you again soon. And in the meantime, enjoy iPhone season.